When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. These are accessible goals for most people, whether they have psychiatric problems or not. Most people can achieve a sense of meaning and purpose, can find close social relationships, can have happiness and life satisfaction. That was Dr. Margaret Chisholm on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. Praxis offers both live and on-demand courses with options for beginner as well as more advanced clinicians. Praxis is also known for its top acceptance and commitment therapy trainers. So if you're a clinician and you want to level up your ACT skills, Praxis is the place. And if you're like us at Psychologists Off the Clock and you want to transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training, check out Praxis Continuing Education. You can get a coupon code on the offers page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors.
Hi, everybody. It's Diana here, and I'm starting a new venture in 2022. I'm launching a new podcast called Your Life in Process, and I hope that in addition to listening to Psychologists Off the Clock, you'll join me there. My new podcast will offer you ideas from modern psychology and contemplative practice and teach you how to take these principles out of the book and off the cushion and apply them to your daily life. I have conversations with thought leaders and spiritual teachers, people like Trudy Goodman, Rick Hansen, Jed Brewer. And the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I want to be your partner in becoming more psychologically flexible. The podcast is called Your Life in Process because it's not a self-improvement project, but rather about how to apply the core processes of human flourishing in your ever-changing life. You can sign up for it at yourlifeinprocess.com and please help me spread the word. Well, we're sad to see you go, Diana. We'll have one less co-host, but Debbie Sorensen, Jill Stoddard, and I are going to be doing some reinvention while continuing to offer the same great in-depth interviews and science-backed psychology content with leaders in the field. Our new directions will involve opportunities for us to get more interactive with all of our listeners, including with the -the off-the-clock book club that we'll be launching, as well as several other exciting developments we have in store. So we hope you stay tuned for details from Psychologists Off the Clock. Hello, this is Debbie, and I'm here today with Yael to introduce an episode with a psychiatry professor, Dr. Meg Chisholm. Uh, She wrote a book called From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. And it's interesting because Yael and I, without really any coordination or knowledge of what the other one had lined up, both just interviewed psychiatrists two in a row. So the previous episode was also with a psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, who works on addiction. And this is a psychiatry professor who works on mental health disorders. And what's so interesting, I think, is that often psychiatry and psychology, you know, all these different disciplines that fall under the mental health world are a little bit siloed. You know, we may work in the same clinic sometimes or coordinate care for a client that we're working with or something like that. But often, I don't really know what's going on in the psychiatry world. They may or may not know what's going on in the world of psychology, social work, etc. So it's kind of fun to have two psychiatrists come on the show. Yeah, I think that psychiatry and psychology have a lot in common and can really benefit from more collaboration. There's a realization that each profession brings a lot of strengths that psychiatrists have medical knowledge, which is, you know, very specialized and super important. And psychologists at least have a lot of um, specialized knowledge in research and in treatment practices, which is, of course, incredibly important as well. And so when the collaborations can happen, everybody can bring their strengths to the table. So I think it's a great thing that we're having more psychiatrists on the psychology podcast. And I think collaboration in general, bringing together multiple points of view and multiple areas of expertise is just such a hugely important thing to, to sort of be building on our knowledge base and on our effective practices. Right. And I think there are slightly different, you know, the training's different, clearly, but there are also slightly different worldviews when it comes to psychiatry and psychology. And I think that one thing I appreciated about this episode with Dr. Chisholm is just hearing a little bit about how she's thinking about things like how people develop mental health disorders in the first place and some of the different pathways that she looks at, um, which I think you found helpful to think about as well. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of the episode that I did on happiness with Sonia Lubomirsky, and her research talks about different predictors of happiness, just as Dr. Chisholm talks a lot about predictors of mental health problems. 
But I think both Dr. Chisholm and Sonia Lubomirsky have one thing in common, which is like the paths sort of harken back to, to two different larger domains, which is like things that we have control over, like our intentional activities, building relationships with people who are good for us versus letting the toxic relationships kind of fade by the wayside, um, finding appropriate help. Those are things that we have some influence over. And then there's certain things that we don't have much control over, like our genetics, you know, the, our, our genetic loading for depression or schizophrenia, um, you know, who our parents are, what our financial circumstances that we were raised in are. And those things are more useful for us to just accept and develop some compassion around, whereas the things that we have influence over, it's more useful for us to take action and recognizing the difference in them and, and being having clarity and like, what do we have control over versus what we don't helps us to figure out like where to put our energetic resources in terms of taking action and where to put our energetic resources in terms of building more compassion for ourselves and for others. So I just really love the way that she lays it out. I think it's so helpful, both if you're struggling with a mental health problem or if somebody you love is. I love that word compassion here. Her book is geared toward people who are struggling with a mental health condition themselves and their friends and family. And I think that often people who are struggling, you know, regardless of which mental health disorder we're talking about, will often get into a place of self-blame. You know, you hear this from parents sometimes like, did I do something that caused this? Was it my behavior when they were an infant or a toddler or something like that? And I think if you look at the big picture of all the different factors that are involved, it does allow you to be more compassionate, whether you yourself have a mental health condition or whether you know or love someone who does, which we all do, I'm sure, right? Like it's, you know, it's a very common experience. Um, But it's recognizing and it's very complex and there's not like one thing that you did. And then her book also goes into some ways to really build a meaningful life and to flourish regardless. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Margaret Chisholm. My guest today, Dr. Margaret Chisholm, is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and the vice chair for education, psychiatry, and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She has published over 100 scientific, clinical, and medical education articles and book chapters on substance abuse in pregnancy and other psychiatric disorders as well as on the use of social media and the arts and humanities in medicine. Dr. Chisholm has been recognized as an Arnold P. Gold Foundation humanism scholar and is the recipient of the 2014 Johns Hopkins University Alumni Association Excellence in Teaching Award. Congratulations on that. And we're here today to talk about her new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. And the book is a resource for people who are experiencing mental health conditions, as well as for their friends and family, um, with the goal of helping them live a fuller, more satisfying life. It's a terrific book, a terrific resource, and really excited to talk to you about it. Welcome, Dr. Chisholm. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And I'm really excited to, to talk with you today. Thanks. Yeah, me too. I I really enjoyed reading your work. And actually, before we dive into the book, though, I just wanted to set the scene in the current context and to hear your thoughts. There are so many stressors in the world right now and in the last couple of years. I'm sure that's news to no one, right? We all have been experiencing this really, you know, wild time in history. And people are concerned about mental health, about substance abuse, about the emotional impact. So, Meg, I was just wondering if we could 
talk about what you're seeing. Like you're, you have probably a finger on the pulse of that. What are you seeing in your work? And do you have any thoughts about mental health in this current era we're living in? Well, obviously, this is a huge, huge stressor to so many of us. The pandemic is not only isolating uh, people from one another, uh, changing the way that they work, uh, with whom they interact, distancing them from relatives, uh, from all these social supports. It's really impacted the fabric of our life, right? Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book are these four pathways to flourishing, and that's family community, work, and education. And the pandemic has interrupted all of those. So it's had a major impact on our sense of well-being, including our mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I had a connected that dot that you just made about how the various pathways that you write about in your book. So for instance, work and community and family have all been disrupted. That's a really good point. And I think it speaks to the role of the environmental stressors on our emotional state. Definitely. And, and we're seeing this, right? We're all seeing um, not only in our professional lives, but in our personal lives, we're seeing people who are struggling, uh, who may be relapsing on substances, who are more isolated, more lonely, who are uh, having stressors that precipitate major mental illnesses. So uh, there, this is affecting us in all aspects of our emotional life, really. Yeah. And I, I won't go too far into this. I have a lot to say about it. But I think it's also pointing out some problems with our mental health care systems and how there just aren't the resources, you know, to support everyone through this. It's, you know, if you're experiencing this, you're not alone. I think that's really important to know. And I just wish there were more source resources available. It's really put a strain on the system. I mean, you know, the telehealth has been great because it's really provided opportunities for people to come to treatment more regularly, to decrease some of those geographic, those physical barriers to treatment. But on the other hand, it has, because there's so many people who are already in treatment who have been able to take up all those appointment spots, it hasn't allowed more appointment spots to be opened up for people who were accessing mental health for the first time. So it's really caused a logjam in our system, which is already strained. Absolutely. I'm seeing that in my practice. And I know people in my community and then any kind of system or medical setting, it's like, it's just tough to access service because there's not enough to go around, really. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's being used more and more by people who are already in the system. Yeah. So one of the things, your book from Survive to Thrive, one of the things I love so much about it is how open you are in writing about yourself and your own struggles and just some of the challenges you face throughout your own life, you've personally faced. And I love that because I think that in doing so, it really helps to destigmatize mental health conditions and just going through rough times in life. And so I would actually love to hear your thoughts on mental health stigma and also why you chose to to do that in your book. Yeah, thank you for uh, acknowledging that. It was, you know, the thing is that the goal of the book was, my goal in writing the book was to demystify psychiatry and how, when mental health goes awry, uh, sometimes referred to as mental illness, it could also be just 
referred to as psychiatric problems or problems in thinking or behaving or feeling. But my goal was to demystify psychiatry and psychiatric illness, but also to destigmatize. And when I teach, I often use a case history to illustrate what, you know, the various elements of mental life and when that goes awry. And I usually use the case of Ernest Hemingway, because if you think about his life um, and his uh, struggles with mental illness, they really had multiple origins. You, you know, he was a heavy drinker. Um, he also had a very strong family history of, of psychiatric illness, of depression and suicide uh, and suicide attempts. And he, so there was clearly disease going on. There were, he clearly had a behavioral disorder, but he also had, um, you know, challenges in his life from serving in the military and having injuries and chronic pain. Um, and he also had a very uh, vibrant, adventurous personality, which caused problems. So he was a great, um, he's a great case to illustrate the perspectives uh, approach, which is what I talk about in the book. But on the other hand, uh, if I'm writing a book, um, you know, I'm not a Hemingway expert. And so I knew that I was going to, was going to have to do a lot more research on Hemingway's life to, to really bring this to life. And I thought, well, you know, I've had similar struggles as many of us have. And so why not just share my own story? Uh, a, I wouldn't have to do all that research, but B, it would also help connect me, I think, with the reader and help uh, this other aim of destigmatizing psychiatric illness. So, um, so that's why I decided to just share my own story. You know, I'm, I'm in my sixties. <laughs> I don't have too much to lose, I think, by sharing my story. There's stigma still exists, of course. Um, but I have accomplished a lot in my career, uh, for which I'm really grateful. But um, I thought by sharing my, if I can't share my story, who can really? So um, I decided to share that story and hope that it helped other people uh, feel better uh, about uh, having psychiatric problems or struggles and accessing care. Yeah. I mean, I just appreciate that. It, it Partly, you know, sometimes it's brave. It feels vulnerable to put ourselves out there, but it did connect me to you, make me feel like, oh, I know a little bit about where you're coming from. More importantly, though, as a stance, I do think it's just a reminder to everyone, you know, you really have accomplished so many things and write books and you're a professor that no one's immune from struggle. It gives a sense of you know, life can be hard for everyone. It sort of normalizes some of the ups and downs that everyone goes through. So I really appreciate you doing that. I think from the perspective of a reader, maybe feeling less alone when life feels hard. Yeah. I mean, these are human experiences. And I think starting to talk about these human experiences as, as ones that we share really help us um, not only access care, but also just have that support of being able to, um, you know, feel like you can talk to somebody about what you're going through. Because mm -hmm. chances are they're going through something similar, or they've known somebody that's gone through something similar. And it can be yeah. very isolating, uh, especially with the more highly stigmatized illnesses. I mean, my, you know, I had depression and postpartum depression, it's probably one of the least stigmatized illnesses. It's still got stigma uh, surrounding it, uh, but compared to substance use disorders or 
um, severe personality disorders, they can be much more highly stigmatized. And um, so I think, you know, I, I really think that we should be at the vanguard uh, as healthcare professionals who also have uh, these uh, psychiatric illnesses, we should be at the vanguard of, we should be leading the way of, uh, of sharing our own stories. Yeah. Well, and you also take a very whole person centered approach. And I want to break down that, uh, you know, the perspectives that you approach that you write about in your book here in just a minute. But first, just thinking about this shift, right, from a whole person approach, rather than looking at the person as their diagnosis or as their psychiatric illness and and kind of pigeonholing them in that way, you really do advocate for looking more at the whole person in the context of their situation and their life. And um, I'm really curious, first of all, if you could just speak a little bit about the difference for listeners who might be outside of the field who don't maybe haven't um, maybe haven't learned about that, what, what the difference is. And then also, you know, just do you see the field of psychiatry changing in that direction? I think as a psychologist, I'm not as attuned to psychiatry, but I certainly see it. Um, you know, people are getting a little bit away from the, you know, kind of DSM diagnosis model and more toward looking at the whole person. I'm curious your thoughts about that. Yeah, well, I think it's really hard to practice um, psychiatry or any uh, mental health practice. It's really hard to practice that without taking into account the whole person, right? I mean, you can be a surgeon and I think uh, per, you can be a surgeon and you might be able to get by with <laughs> with not thinking about somebody in terms of their uh, personality and their behaviors and things like that. I, I don't think you'd be an excellent surgeon, but I think you could get by. But you can't, I don't think you can really get by as a mental health professional without acknowledging somebody as a person because mental life is not um, reducible to the brain. Um, even if you have a disease like schizophrenia, which is clearly, a, you know, has its origins in, in, um, in the brain, you can't really treat somebody who has schizophrenia by just focusing on the disease because that, you know, our sense of self is really tied up with our mental life. And when our mental life goes awry, when a disease happens that affects our brain, you know, we give that meaning and that alters our sense of self. Uh, and for that alone, you're going to need to be able to talk to somebody as a person. And, you know, the thing about a disease like schizophrenia is you know, that sometimes it's fairly challenging to get the symptoms under control. It can be challenging to recover uh, functioning. It can happen. Um, but there's still the possibility of leading a full life, even if you have symptoms, even if you don't return to the level of functioning that you had before your disease hit you. Um, and so helping people uh, discover or recover meaning in their life and a sense of purpose and well-being is really central to what I think uh, our job is as mental health professionals. And you can't do that without looking at somebody as a whole person and thinking about, you know, what what are their goals? Uh, what brings their life meaning? Who, who do they have connections with? Um, how can they find a sense of purpose in their life, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a great example to look at that. So someone with schizophrenia and think, you know, here's this person who has this particular issue. And your book is about 
still helping the person, like looking at the whole person because they're more than just that. That's one aspect of their experience, but that's not the only thing that defines them. But then also thinking, how can they live the most meaningful life possible? How can they, you know, follow these different or um, how can they look at these different areas of flourishing and really have a meaningful, full life? Yeah, there was a paper that just came out uh, that looked at people with schizophrenia and they were had active symptoms. They weren't um, having a relief from their symptoms. They were not having functional recovery at all. But 25% of them with therapy were able to have personal recovery. Um, and we focus so much as mental health professionals I think on functional recovery, on symptom recovery, rather than this personal recovery, the sense of like, what, what do you want out of life? Do you feel like you have value? How can I help you uh, feel if you don't? Uh, how can I help you feel like you have value as a, a person that your life still has meaning and purpose? Uh, there's so much we can do in those realms of meaning and restoring a sense of, uh, meaning and purpose for our patients, uh, even if they have symptoms that interfere with their um, functional recovery. So, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the co-hosts of this podcast, we talk a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy, which is an approach that's less about symptom reduction and more about identifying your values and moving forward towards your values and, and being more open to all of those experiences. Maybe you're hearing voices in your mind come and go, you can still move forward toward your values. And instead That's of great. putting all your time and effort into getting rid of those voices from your head, which just keeps you stuck, it's like, let's get you moving forward in your life. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we, that's what we need to pay, I think, more attention to in all, um, in all of medicine, really. Yeah, I love that. Well, let's talk about the perspectives model a bit more. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but it's way of understanding, I think, you write in your book, both mental health and mental illness. It's just a way of kind of framing a person's life. You have the four pathways to, to take a more complete view at the person. And I'll just run down them really quickly. And then I want to unpack a couple things here. So you, the four, per, the four pathways are the life story perspective, the dimensional perspective, the behavior perspective, and the disease perspective. So we've talked a little bit about the medicalization or the disease perspective. And again, in the book, you approach that with some caution because you, you know, you're not wanting to overly emphasize that piece, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the idea is that there, so there's four perspectives and then there's four pathways. And so the four perspectives are, are really ways of considering psychiatric problems that one may be having and the origin of those problems. And so in the rest of medicine, for the most part, uh, when people have non-psychiatric problems that they bring to uh, a healthcare professional, those problems usually have their origin in a broken part of the body or broken function. Um, and it's a biomedical model that looks at the symptoms, signs and symptoms that a patient's bringing, you know, high fever, a cough, and then figures out what is the, um, what's going on in the body to cause those symptoms. You know, is it a virus? Is it, um, is it, you know, a, a vitamin deficiency? Is it, 
you know, a, a, a broken, you know, part in the lungs, what, you know, what's going on um, to cause these problems. But in, in psychiatry, it's really different. So yes, there can be problems that come about because of a broken part in the body, generally the brain, but not necessarily for psychiatric problems. Um, but that's just one source or one origin of psychiatric problems. Many psychiatric problems have nothing to do with a broken part in the brain or a broken function in the, in the body. Um, it can be uh, because of a personality um, difference that you uh, have. It can be because of something you're doing, like restricting your food intake uh, because of being fear of uh, being overweight. Or it can be because of uh, a response to an event in your environment like grief. So there's four different ways of understanding psychiatric problems. And that's, you know, three more ways than in the rest of medicine, which is primarily just because of something that someone, uh, you know, uh, because of a disease process that has uh, happened to someone. Well, I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One is that I think in understanding these different pathways, you could kind of see how sometimes it's a mix of them or it's a, you know, definitely combination of factors. Definitely. It gives, it's usually yeah. at least two, if not three, because everybody has a personality and everybody has a life story. So we know it's at least two. Right. <laughs> Always, if Always. not <laughs> three or four. But I also think, so this is, I'll be a slight bit nerdy here about this, but I think that we talk sometimes in, in my field about a more mechanistic view, like, oh, there's this part of you that's broken. I think that maps on with what you were talking about, the disease model. It's like, there's something wrong with you that's faulty. And sure, maybe sometimes there are some biological pieces to this or something like that. But I think if people identify too strongly with this, it's almost, it, it, there can be that self-pathologizing, that self-shame, like, what's wrong with me? What did I do? Versus taking a look at the whole picture here and how there's all these different, very complicated pieces of it and really looking at it in in context it's it's multiple not just pathways but it's also there's multiple pieces of it yeah i mean all these things are interacting right if um yeah. you know if i experience a, an event that's stressful uh like the loss of a loved one you know depending on my personality it's going to be more or less difficult to recover from that as well as things that are about the relationship itself, of course. But um, so your personality really interacts with life events um, to, you know, either protect you from having more severe reactions to the life events or making it so that they are, um, you know, more severe. Um, and so that's an example of those two interacting. But then, you know, if you have are experiencing a lot of stress, if you respond really strongly to life stressors, you know, those just having that ongoing stress can make you more vulnerable to having an episode of depression. Uh, so then you have three perspectives at work there. Um, you know, it may make you more likely to uh, engage in substance use uh, to the point that it becomes problematic. So there all these things are interacting, all these perspectives can interact. But if we just look at someone from the disease perspective only, even if it's a, you know, that's a very strong 
reason that they're having problems like with schizophrenia or an episode of, of mania, if we're still only looking at someone as from the disease perspective, we're going to miss the more personal aspects of the impact of that disease on someone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You'd miss a lot. Well, and I was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit more, I think to me out of the four, the life story perspective really struck me as just, it, it, it is absolutely something that I think about with my clients, right? Their history and some of the challenges they faced and their historical context and that kind of thing. But I had never really quite thought about it in the way that you that you describe in your book. And so people can read the book if they want to get a, a better sense of all four of them. And I think it's really helpful for anyone who's trying to understand, you know, mental health and mental illness. Um, but would you mind just unpacking, I think, a little bit more about the life story perspective and how our life circumstances, you know, like, how do you work with that with your patients? Yeah. So, I mean, I, the life story perspective is really this, the most personal of the perspectives. It's, it's about the meaning that you give events in your life, um, and how you deal with events in your life. Um, and it's called the life story perspective because, you know, sort of the underlying concepts are that, you know, that you are like a story, right? That you have, there's a particular setting. Uh, for every story, there's a sequence of events that happens in a story, and then there's an outcome to the story, how you're dealing with uh, these events in light of, you know, when they happen to you, etc. And so there are lots of psychiatric problems that um, really uh, have their origin in the life story perspective, or the best understood from the life story perspective. Uh, because it's, again, it's about how you're dealing with problems, the meaning you're giving to problems. So I think so many people come to see a mental health professional because their life isn't where they want it to be, right? And so uh, that could be because they've had a disease that's interrupted uh, their life trajectory. It can be because they're engaging in behaviors that are problematic and are interrupting their life. It can be because of their personality being you know, um, uh, it, interacting with certain life stressors and making um, things more difficult for them. Or it can be just a life event, uh, you know, a significant life event, like the loss of a, a, a one's life partner or something like that, or the loss of a child. But, you know, people come for help when their life's not where they want it to be. And so taking into consideration what story someone is telling themselves about that is really important. And so, mm. you know, there are some, you know, classic kind of stories that people tell themselves, like they, you know, there's the victim story, right? My life's not where I want it to be, because all these things have happened to me, and I'm powerless and helpless. And so one of the goals in therapy for people who are telling themselves that story is to build a more collaboratively to build a more uh, adaptive story, um, you know, to feel like you have some agency in your life, that you have been a survivor rather than a victim. And so the goal of treatment for someone who's prim primarily having a, uh, a psychiatric problem that's emerging from the life story perspective is to re-script uh, collaboratively, tentatively, 
with uh, a person so that they can have a more healing story that they they tell themselves. Um, so that's really the goal. Um, and then there are other, you know, stories that people might say that they they might have um, a loss of a loved one and feel like it was because they weren't a good enough person that they had done something to, you know, upset God or um, they felt like they might deserve this. Or so people tell themselves all kinds of stories um, about why things have happened to them, um, and it's important to understand those stories and to help uh, shape those stories with with the person to one that is going to be more adaptive and help them feel a, a sense of well-being. Yeah, help them maybe broaden their narrative. And especially if they they have a narrative that's not helpful, that's keeping them stuck and limiting them to help exactly. them kind of see that in a, in a different way, change perspective. You know, I, I'll just say, reiterate, your book is so accessible. And I think for people who don't have much understanding, you know, you really I mean, this is kind of what we learned to do over years and years of training is to look at these different models of how these, you know, these types of conditions emerge. So definitely people who want to learn more, it's like the most accessible thing I think I've ever read that really conveys <laughs> that in such a, you know, a, a non-simplistic way. It's, yeah, I mean, it's complicated it's, it, material in a straightforward writing style, <laughs> you know? No, I mean, you know, I don't think it's, I mean, it's complicated, um, but I think that it's, it is an accessible framework. Um, so, you know, basically this is the perspectives approach is really just making explicit what we're doing already or what we know implicitly that, you know, not everything is a disease that we're not, uh, you know, just brains walking around. Right. <laughs> and so it's a framework really for understanding the problems and kind of making it clear what these families of problems are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to transition a little bit into this idea of, okay, so what do you do, right? If you're struggling and I want to start with a quote, you say in your book, you can live a full life. You really can, even if doing so means adjusting your expectations. And that's the nutshell, I think, of what your book is about, is about helping people thrive and flourish in their lives. So sort of looking at the big picture here, even if someone is maybe struggling with mental illness or addiction, what does it look like to move toward flourishing and thriving? Yeah, so I mean... First, you need to kind of get on the path to uh, mental health through figuring out the origin of these problems and attacking those. Um, but while you're doing that, um, you know, because like we said, sometimes these illnesses can be a little resistant to recovery in terms of symptoms, but that sh doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you're held back from a flourishing life. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the you know, what does a good life look like? What's a flourishing life look like? And most people agree, um, and this is, you know, for millennia have agreed that, you know, part of, um, of well-being or a flourishing life is having happiness and life satisfaction, is having mental health and physical health, is having a sense of meaning and purpose, uh, having a sense of character and virtues or values, uh, having close social relationships, all those things are important 
to a full life, you might not be able to have all of them at once. And you there may be some aspects of a flourishing life that you're not going to be able to attain. But setting your sights on what the goals are, what you want out of life is the first step. And realizing that, you know, these are accessible goals for most people, whether they have psychiatric problems or not, most people can achieve a sense of meaning and purpose, can find close social relationships, can have happiness and life satisfaction. And so thinking about those goals and how you're going to get to those goals, you know, we relied on the scientific, the epidemiologic literature that suggests that there are four pathways to flourishing, and those are family, work, education, and community. And thinking about those four pathways and what you can do as you're working on your mental health, what can you do to strengthen those pathways? Those Strengthening those pathways may strengthen your uh, mental health as well, but they'll certainly help you lead a a fuller life uh, while you're on this path to um, to getting better from your mental illness or whatever psychiatric problems you're experiencing. So wow, thinking yes. about ways, you know, I worked at the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy for about 10 years, uh, working with drug-dependent pregnant women who, you know, while they were pregnant, it really wasn't that hard to help them stop using heroin or whatever ever substance they were using, because there was a lot of motivation, you know, wanting the, the baby to be healthy, wanting the to retain custody of the baby when the baby was born, a um, lot of motivators. But it was often hard to help people stay well after the baby was born. And so in addiction, because it's a challenging illness to treat, people for years have relied on these pathways, thinking about how people need to get connected to a community like AA or NA, or reconnect with their faith community, uh, thinking about how people need a job or need to further their education so they can get a better job, um, and reconnect with the families. Uh, Many of our women had to burn bridges with families, as people often do with addiction because of the, you know, um, need for money to support addiction, and they might steal from their family members and lie, etc., so, you know, it's no, these pathways to flourishing are, uh, are no stranger for those of us who work with people with addiction because these are, this is part of the prescription for, for recovery, um, is strengthening these pathways with family, work, education, and community. Um, so just like in addiction, in the rest of psychiatric, um, problems, uh, it's also important to think about these pathways. How can you strengthen uh, your support, so your ties with your family? How can you uh, find a job, um, whether it's a volunteer job or a paid job, in which people are depending on you and and it's bringing you a sense of meaning and purpose in your life? You know, how can you strengthen ties with communities, build a a community of, of people with whom you have shared interests? And again, that could be a faith community that could provide support, or it could be a community of, you know, people with whom you share a hobby. And then thinking about your um, your education, is there something that you, you know, want to do? Was your inter- education interrupted because of an 
a disease process or an illness? Do you want to, um, you know, further your education or do you want to not have formal education continue, but do you want to engage in learning um, a new skill or, um, you know, something that would be more for fun uh, and for enrichment? Yeah. These are all important domains, I think, and for for most people, and also they are things you can engage in. I mean, I love that there's this sense of like, you can take a step, right, in one or more of these domains that will likely enhance your life. Um, so I, I just want to imagine that maybe a brand new patient of yours is sitting with you for the first meeting, and maybe they're not quite where they want to be in their lives. What What are your thoughts about where you would begin in terms of first identifying which pathway and which steps to take? And then how how might you recommend someone get started if they want to take a step in one of these directions or more than one? Yeah. So, um, so you know, with every patient that I see, I spend a couple of hours <laughs> with them at the initial visit. And, you know, the goal is to kind of sort out the look at each, look at their problems from the perspectives, but also to kind of see where they are on these various pathways as well. So with every patient, I'll just make that very explicit. Uh, you know, I'll say at the end of the evaluation where I've asked them to, um, you know, if there's anything I missed, if any, I'll ask them, you know, how much um, do you think uh, you can explain what's going on by this, from this perspective or that perspective? I'll give my point of view and then I'll say, and in terms of your goals, uh, what, what, what are your goals in relation to family, in relation to work, education, and community? And then we'll prioritize. We'll prioritize which uh, aspects of the psychiatric problems to focus on and we'll prioritize which of the pathways to focus on. And we do that simultaneously. Um, you know, if somebody has, is coming with, uh, the disease of mania that might be a focus is to get them out of that manic episode so that they can, you know, engage in psychotherapy in a, in a more coherent and, and helpful way. Um, so that might be the priority there. Um, but once they are able to engage in therapy, setting the goals, do they want to uh, get support from a community? Do they want to be able to go back to work? What's, what's the priority? at the moment for them. Um, but all the, these are operating kind of simultaneously thinking about the four perspectives, thinking about the four pathways and making priority priorities with the patient um, mm -hmm. around those perspectives and around those uh, pathways. Yeah. It sounds very collaborative and going through that process together of determining the goals. Do you offer any advice for getting started for taking steps in whatever the goal oriented domain might be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I tend not to want to impose, you know, things on patients. I really like it to be collaborative and I like it to come from them. Um, so, but, you know, I will inquire about, for instance, in terms of faith communities, I will inquire if they had been a part of a faith community, if that was something that uh, was meaningful to them. Is that something that they want to re-engage in? And then what steps would need to be taken? Would they need to like visit various, you know, faith communities? Or is there one that their family members go to that they would 
kind of go with them to um, things like that. But it is very collaborative. I really don't want to impose um, anything on someone. I really want it to come from them. So it would be through me asking questions um, and helping people identify what their priorities are that we we arrive at this. So I tend not to give too much advice mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because I always say, you know, if it goes well, then, you know, they can't take the credit. It's more me that, you know, told them to do this. So I want them to be, I want people to be able to take the credit when things go well. And I also want them to take the responsibility when things don't go well and not just blame me for having given <laughs> crummy advice. So I really think it's important to develop a sense of agency um, in terms of set, helping the the patient set the priorities and 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 the, the next steps that they want to take, and then be able to reap the rewards of those um, good decisions. Yeah, very client centered in the sense that you're not telling them what to do. You're, you know, helping them clarify it for themselves, but you're not giving them a an order or demand. It's it's more just you know, guiding them along their own path. Oh, right. I mean, I often yeah. joke that, you know, I've got enough kind of, I have to make enough decisions about my own life. <laughs> I don't want to take on the responsibility <laughs> of another, of making those for another person. So yeah, it's hard enough for ourselves. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and on the podcast, for those who are interested in more, we, we do a lot of episodes where we talk about either values and exploring your values if you're not sure. Um, but then also, you know, goal setting and behavior change steps, because there's so many things that can be hard about making a change or taking a very courageous action. You know, you mentioned the example of re-engaging with a faith community. You know, sometimes people, it takes some courage to take a step in that direction, maybe joining a new church or religious group or something like that. And so I think, you know, there are some evidence-based strategies that can help people once they've identified something that they can kind of move in the direction that's that's important to them with their individually chosen values. Yeah, it's amazing what people can accomplish when they have internal motivation to do so. I mean, I, I have a patient right now who joined uh, a, a sport that I don't know if I'd have the courage to join. <laughs> it's all, I, I really get a lot of inspiration from my patients who are able to do things that I don't know if I could do myself. And I certainly didn't expect them to be able to do. It's been very impressive seeing what people can do when they're really uh, motivated. So, Absolutely. so it's really supporting that motivation that's and, and giving people a lot of positive reinforcement for taking those steps that I think is my role. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about the role of friends or family members. So you also, you know, your book is also directed maybe towards someone who has a person that they love and care about who's struggling with mental illness or addiction. Do you have any words of wisdom to offer someone who wants to support someone that they care about who's struggling? Yeah, well, I think one point that I make in the book is how important it is to have a family member or a close friend uh, be part of the psychiatric evaluation or that you know, that initial evaluation, especially, um, because they have a perspective that sometimes that, you know, will be helpful, and will be complementary to the perspective that the patient brings. And so I think kind of clarifying and trying to get more like a 360 kind of a view of the person can really be helpful in understanding the problem. And 
perhaps it's even appropriate in the treatment to figure out how they can best support this person. But I also think um, understanding uh, the origins of somebody's problems can be helpful for family members. Understanding that this might not, if it's a disease, that there may be aspects of this that are beyond the control of the person, or if um, if somebody feels things really strongly, that that is that's just who they are. That's not typically going to change. What will change is how they respond to that in terms of their th- own thoughts or behaviors, and so supporting a person knowing when to. Um, you know, what is within somebody's control and what isn't. Um, if you're close to somebody who has uh, an eating disorder, is has anorexia nervosa or something like that, knowing, um, you know, how you can be best supportive to them, um, you know, because choice becomes so narrowed uh, when you have a behavioral disorder um, that what looks to you like it would be a really easy choice. There are all these bad things happening in somebody's life. Why are they still engaging in this behavior? Knowing how with conditioned learning, with what they're getting out of starving themselves, which not might not be apparent to you, how that has narrowed their choice and made this a really, um, you know, difficult uh, to, to act in the ways that you think seem like reasonable to act. So just un- getting a better understanding, I think, of the origin of psychiatric problems will really help family um, members be able to support their loved ones in um, their recovery from these problems. Yeah, it can help be more compassionate and know how to support someone. And, but I think, yeah, I, I just think that this is so critical in terms of just the role of social support in recovery. You know, we need that sense of being cared for and community as part of living a full, meaningful life. And so it's really an important piece of it. Yeah, I mean, we've known for years how important families are to the recovery from psychiatric illness. I mean, schizophrenia is a classic example of that. The there are definitely things that family members can do that will improve the prognosis of their family member. You know, if the, the high expressed emotion, uh, which is either uh, kind of a lot of, of, of vocal volatility in the family or just kind of helicoptering, um, that kind of involvement or over-involvement can really be detrimental detrimental um, to somebody with schizophrenia to their well-being. So we know that there are things that family members can do to help support their loved ones in these diseases. And we've known that for years. Um, And that's not to blame parents (laughs) for these diseases, but it's just to say that there are things that we can do uh, with for our loved ones that will help support them. Um, So knowing what those are for, for various illnesses is really important, I think. Yeah. Yes, I agree. So one final question, I think, you know, when I'm, we talked about when you're kind of getting started with someone and helping them with getting started down these pathways, when I'm wrapping up with a client at the end of some work that we've done together, I'll often talk to them about navigating setbacks ahead, right? The bumps in the road that are inevitable. It's part of life as we've learned through the last few years, life can be hard sometimes. How do you look at setbacks 
in your work as you're you're working with your patients in as part of the recovery process? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, so when I uh, meet with patients, I always everything's always tentative, right? So we come up with a a tentative treatment, pl- a tentative formulation tentative diagnosis, tentative treatment plan, and we see how things go. Um, you know, I think there's a myth that people are supposed to feel worse before they feel better in treatment. I mean, the idea is that overall, you're supposed to be feeling better. And so reassessing after several months, how things are going, you know, um, you know, is this, are we on the right path? Is this are things getting better? So I think setting the expectation that it's going to always be a collaborative experience is important. I also think it's important to set the expectation that there may be times when, you know, you're not moving forward as, uh, as quickly as you had been, or that there are setbacks. This is clearly the case with addiction, right? It's, you know, it's a, relapses to be expected. Um, so I think really having role induction at the beginning of treatment over what to expect that, yes, generally things should be moving forward. If they're not, we're going to try to figure out why. Maybe it's something that we're doing in the treatment. But also, you know, once one is well on the path to recovery from there's one's psychiatric problems, it's important to realize that life happens and there may be times when things are not going to go as well as they have been going and that you need to kind of look at your goals and look at the what might be going on that's causing these obstacles. Yeah, I think that's, it, it's really looking at more of a process, right? It's not a one and done kind of situation. It's a process and you're, you're helping people you know, prepare for that and expect that to be the case and, and to have some, some idea of what to do when those, those bumps in the road do happen as they continue, continue living their life. Yeah, absolutely. Life is long and <laughs> many things happen to us, uh, often unexpected. So, uh, and, you know, we need to be able to reach out for support also. Well, and on that note, how can people find more about your work? We have your book from Survive to Thrive available. And are you online or where can people learn more about the work that you're doing? Well, I do have a website. It's margaretchismd.com. And then also uh, I have a webpage through Hopkins. So Johns Hopkins, Margaret Chisholm. I think I'm the only one there. So you can find me there too. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your work with us today and coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, it's great talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.